So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Mark chapter 14. We'll be in verses 12 to 26. Mark, my bad, Mark chapter 14. We'll be in verses 12 to 26. I'm going to take that as a sign. I need to drink some water. June 19th, 1865, was the day that the institution of race-based chattel slavery was put to an end in the United States of America. You see, on that day, all African Americans were freed from slavery. You see, the Emancipation Proclamation, it became a law on January 1st, 1863, And on that day, many slaves were freed, but not all. You see, all slaves would be freed as news of the emancipation reached Galveston, Texas, to where slaves learned that they have been set free. And this is a day that many African Americans, we commemorate and celebrate. This day is commonly referred to as Juneteenth. Many of us would call it Freedom Day. You see, on that day, many African-American communities will come together and we would celebrate. Now, the celebration would normally consist of a cookout where a brother's on the grill, killing it, games of dominoes and spades, music, celebrating, maybe even a soul train line. Y'all, it is one of my favorite holidays, especially as an African-American man. You see, on Juneteenth, as we celebrate, one of the things that we do is that we look back and we remember our former identity, how we were oppressed and enslaved, treated as second-class citizens. But we also look around because we see that 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 is no longer our identity. We have been set free, and we celebrate our freedom. But then we also look ahead dreaming on what the future can hold for fellow African-Americans in this country. You see, Juneteenth is a day where African-Americans come together. We look in three directions. We look back, we look around, and we look ahead. We celebrate our freedom. Well, as we come to this morning's passage, one of the things that we will see is that the celebration of freedom is not man's invention, but God's. You see, God has commanded his people to remember the deliverance that he has brought about, to celebrate the redemption and the freedom that he has accomplished. He commanded ethnic Israel in the Old Testament to remember this through the Passover, and now he commands his church, both believing Jews and Gentiles, to celebrate our redemption as we remember the Lord Jesus Christ. And Juneteenth, as we celebrate with a meal, so we do the same with the Lord's Supper. We celebrate our redemption through this meal. And so Mark chapter 14, verses 12 to 24, 26, if you're able to, please stand for the reading of God's word. On the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples asked him, 
Where do you want us to go and prepare the Passover so that you may eat it? So he sent two of his disciples and told them, go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. Wherever he enters, tells the owner of the house. The teacher says, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs, furnished and ready. Make the preparations for us there. So the disciples went out, entered the city, and found it just as he had told them. They prepared the Passover. When evening came, he arrived with the twelve. While they were reclining and eating, Jesus said, Truly I tell you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be distressed and to say to him one by one, Surely not I. He said to them, It is one of the twelve, the one who is dipping bread in the bowl with me. For the Son of Man will go just as it has been written about him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for him if he had not been born. As they were eating, he took bread, blessed and broke it, gave it to them, and said, Take it, this is my body. Then he took a cup, and after giving thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. He said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I tell you, I will no longer drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. After singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. You may be seated. And so our big idea for this morning's passage is this. Jesus fulfills the Passover. Our big idea is Jesus fulfills the Passover. We have three points or three scenes that we will see. First, we will see the preparation of the Passover. Second, a prediction during the Passover. Third, a transformation of the Passover. So we see preparation, prediction, and transformation. So it's been a few weeks since we've been in Mark's gospel. And so to bring us up to speed, this is Jesus' Passion Week. This is the last week of his earthly ministry, and he's days away from his death. See, the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread was among them. Jesus was recently anointed, and he declared that his death was imminent. And one of his disciples... One of the 12 apostles, Judas, went to the Sanhedrin and voluntarily chose to betray Jesus. So this brings us to our first point, which is the preparation of the Passover. You see, Passover is here. In the celebration, the Jews, they were to slaughter a Passover lamb. Now, to understand why, we must go back past Exodus and go to Genesis. Genesis chapter 15, where God made a covenant with Abraham. You see in verses 13 and 14, God promised Abraham's offspring will be enslaved in a foreign land for 400 years. And God promised that he would judge the nation and deliver Abram's offspring. Well, you fast forward to the book of Exodus. 
Israel was enslaved in Egypt at Pharaoh's command. God raised up Moses. Moses went to Pharaoh saying, let my people go. The Lord, I mean, not the Lord, but Pharaoh said, who is the Lord that I may obey him? Pharaoh refused. And so God judged Egypt through plagues. And the first nine plagues, God made a distinction between Israel and Egypt. You see, those plagues solely went upon the Egyptians and the Israelites weren't touched. But in the final plague, there would be no distinction. You see, Israel, like Egypt, was under God's judgment for sin. You see, Israel wasn't inherently better than the Egyptians. They weren't less sinful, and they weren't exempt from judgment. You see, the only way that, they could be, that there could be a substitute for human life and deliverance from judgment was through God's provision. You see, deliverance and redemption only comes through the Lord. In the scripture reading, we see that Israel was commanded to slaughter an unblemished lamb as a substitute and put the blood on the doorpost and the lintel. And this was the distinguishing mark. They were to be covered by the blood. You see, that night God passed through Egypt and he killed all the firstborns. But wherever he saw the blood, judgment passed over that house. You see, the Passover, it resulted in Israel's exodus from Egypt and it led into them being established as a nation. You see, in the Passover, we see that God is faithful to his promises, that God is gracious to save, that God alone redeems, that salvation comes through sacrifice, that redemption comes through blood, and that God must provide. You see, Israel was commanded to remember their redemption and deliverance from Egypt and to celebrate it annually through the Passover meal. Which brings us back to our passage. You see, Jesus and his disciples, they were likely in Bethany. And the disciples asked Jesus, where in Jerusalem should we go to prepare the Passover meal? Because according to Deuteronomy, chapter 16, verses 5 to 8, they must celebrate the Passover meal in Jerusalem. We'll look at verses 13 to 15. So he sent two of his disciples and told them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. Wherever he enters, tell the owner of the house, the teacher says, Where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs, furnished and ready. Make the preparations for us there. You see, Jesus, he gives specific instructions. Sends two disciples on a covert mission similar to what took place in chapter 11 with retrieving a donkey. You see, Jesus, he gives specific instructions. He tells them where to go and what will happen. You see, Jesus knew where to go, who they'd meet, where they'd be led, what to say, and what they should do. All of this testifies to Jesus' knowledge and his control. You see, Jesus knows all things and controls all things because of who he is. He is the Son of God, 
the omniscient one, the one who is sovereign. If you look at verse 16, you will see that it worked as Jesus said. And the reason why it worked as Jesus said was because Jesus said it. Y'all, his fingers wasn't crossed. He wasn't hoping for the best. He missed no detail and he called no audible. You see, the amazing thing is that the one who knows all and controlled all while on earth is the same one who knows all and controls all as he reigns in heaven. You see, he has lost no knowledge and no control, and he has lost no sheep. He has complete control, and he knows us. You see, Jesus knows who we are, that we are his, where we are, and where he's taking us. You see, we have no control, but Jesus has complete control. And because we know him and we're in him, beloved, we can trust him in all things. Because he is sovereign, because he loves us, and he is for us. Now, if you look at verses 13 to 15, one of the things you would see is that all the instructions that Jesus gave, if you read the Greek, you would see that it was in the imperative tense meaning that these were commands that the disciples should obey. You see, in recent years, many people, they have a common conversation that talks about the love languages. One man in particular, I think his name is Gary Chapman, he wrote a book on the five love languages. And people are constantly talking about the love languages because we want to learn the best ways that we can show our love to specific people. Now, the the five love languages, they are acts of service, gifts, physical touch, quality time, and words of affirmation. Well, y'all, let me tell y'all, Jesus has a love language. He does. You know what that love language is? Obedience from the heart. John chapter 14, verse 15, he says, if you love me, You will keep my commands. You see, Jesus' love language is obedience. And the beautiful thing about the Lord Jesus is that we don't have to try to figure out what he commanded. The scriptures reveal his instructions. The only thing that we are to do is to love him on his terms. Love him according to his love language. Beloved, do you love Jesus? Not according to what you think he thinks love is, but according to his commands, according to his love language that he has revealed. Look at verse 16. So the disciples went out, entered the city, and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. You see, the disciples obeyed because Jesus has their allegiance and devotion. You see, where our allegiance goes our trust and obedience follow. As Christians, we confess the Lord Jesus to be our Lord and Savior. He has given us instructions, and our response should be this unreserved obedience where he has our allegiance, our affections, and our devotion. We know that his commands are good. We know that he loves us, and out of a love for him, our aim is to obey him. You see the disciples? These two, they put on their chef hat, 
pulled out their Gordon Ramsay skills, and they began to prepare a meal. Now, this Passover meal, it consisted of unleavened bread, herbs, sauce, multiple cups of wine, and a roasted lamb. You see, these two, they began to prepare the Passover in anticipation of celebrating what God has accomplished, to where they look back and commemorate his saving work of delivering them from Israel, not Israel, but Egypt, in anticipating the coming of the Messiah. And so we've seen the preparation of the Passover. Now let's look at the prediction during the Passover. Look at verses 17 and 18. When evening came, he arrived with the twelve. While they were reclining and eating, Jesus said, Truly I tell you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. So the sun has set, the twelve has arrived, it's time to feast and celebrate. As they're celebrating the Passover, Jesus changes the topic of the conversation. He makes an astonishing prediction. He says, one of you will betray me. You see, his death was on his mind, and he emphatically declared what would precede it. A follower would commit treachery. You see, one who was present with and eating with Jesus was an enemy camouflaged as a follower, a foe disguised as a friend. You see, this one would hand over the innocent one to wicked men. He will give the righteous one into the hands of unrighteous men. And this alludes to Psalm chapter 41, verse 9, where it says, Even my friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has raised his heel against me. You see, this prediction was jarring. The disciples were astounded. Look how they responded in verse 19. They began to be distressed and to say to him one by one, surely not I. You see, they were all taken aback, floored by this prediction, because all appeared devoted and faithful, but one wasn't. You see, for most, their devotion to Jesus was sincere, but for one, it was only an act. Notice what didn't happen, though. The disciples didn't take a poll. They didn't shout out guesses. None were suspicious of Judas. None assumed that he would do it. Instead, they only asked about themselves. They said, surely not I. Catch how they framed the question. Not, is it I, but surely not I. They framed the question negatively. It comes off as if they believed themselves to be incapable of betraying Jesus. Now, why, one would ask, why ask this way? Well, I believe it's because they had an elevated view of themselves, believing themselves to be beyond such act. And here we see a glimpse, and we'll see it even more next week, when Peter would say that he would, even, he would die with Jesus before he denies him. All the disciples will say the very same thing. The next thing you know, the shepherd was taken and the sheep was scattered. You see here, I believe we see an elevated view of the self. And y'all, an elevated view of self is dangerous. It results in one's downfall. 
Pride deceives us. We are weaker than what we think. Many men and women have sinned in ways that they thought that they never would. How many of us have sinned in ways that we thought we never would? You see, pride comes before the fall. And Scripture exhorts us to not think highly of ourselves, but to think of ourselves with sober-mindedness. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12 says, So whoever thinks he stand must be careful to not fall. You see, Jesus' words should have provoked sobriety and humility, an abandonment of self-reliance and a clinging to God's grace and his strength for help. You see, left to ourselves, we are capable of sinning in ways that we would never imagine. Left to ourselves, we're capable of sinning in atrocious ways, which is why we need to be sober-minded, which is why we need to be humble. Beloved, are you sober-minded? Or is there a high view of self? May we pray for one another in this, that we be humble. Look at verses 20 and 21. He said to them, It is one of the twelve, the one who is dipping bread in the bowl with me. For the Son of Man will go just as it has been written about him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for him if he had not been born. You see, Jesus, he narrows it to the twelve. One he chose to be with him, a trusted friend. And we know that it was none other than Judas Iscariot. For in chapter 14, verses 10 and 11, we saw that Judas went to the Sanhedrin with the attempt, with the intent to betray Jesus. And here Jesus iterates that he's about to die. And did you notice that he declared it to be in fulfillment of God's determined will? He says, the Son of Man will go just as it has been written about him. You see, Jesus was not oblivious or ignorant about his suffering and death. He knew about it. He knew about it before he came into the world. He even knew about it before then. Acts chapter 2 verse 23 says, Jesus was delivered up according to God's determined plan and foreknowledge. You see, y'all, the cross was planned before creation. It was prophesied by prophets, and it was penned in Scripture. Isaiah chapter 53, verses 5 and 6. But he was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him, and we are healed by his wounds. We all went astray like sheep. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Isaiah 53 verse 10 says, yet the Lord was pleased to crush him. You see, it was God's will for Jesus to be crushed. Now, why? It was to reverse the curse. You see, sin entered into the world and God mercifully made a promise that a son would come to crush the serpent's head and bring restoration to what sin has ruined. You see, Jesus is the son of God. He is the promised one, the Son of God in human flesh, the promised messianic king, the Son of man, and the suffering servant who bore our sins. You see, Jesus' suffering was according to God's plan, 
out of God's love to display his grace and glory in redeeming sinners and reconciling us to God. You see, the cross, it was planned before creation, prophesied by the prophets, penned in Scripture, and fulfilled by Jesus. Scripture is about him. It points to him, and he fulfills all that is said of him. You see, all of God's promises are yes and amen in the Lord Jesus. You see here, Jesus being omniscient means that he not only knows what will happen to him, but he also knows what will happen to Judas. Look at verse 21. He says, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for him if he had not been born. You see, Judas will be judged. He'll be held accountable for his sin and condemned. You see, Jesus wasn't blindsided by Judas's betrayal. You see, God's sovereignty is so pervasive that Judas's betrayal couldn't and didn't thwart God's purposes. As a brother Vincent Nutt told me this week, God used it as a means to accomplish his purpose. You see, what Judas meant for evil, God used to bring about the greatest good ever imagined. The salvation of sinners. Now, I want to be clear. God's sovereignty doesn't absolve man's responsibility. You see, God didn't coerce Judas to betray Jesus. Judas did this of his own volition, according to his own desires. It was premeditated. You see, God is not the author of nor approver of evil, but he uses it to accomplish his purposes and he will judge. Jesus declares that Judas will not get away with his treachery. Evil never goes unpunished. All sin will be judged and condemned. You see, the question isn't if God will condemn. The question is who Will God condemn? You see, the condemnation is either laid upon his son on the cross or it be laid upon the one who committed such acts and refused to trust in Jesus. Y'all, Jesus says that Judas will be condemned. He betrayed the sinless son of God. You see, in the Gospels, Jesus has condemned cities who witnessed his miracles but didn't repent. How much more Judas, one who was an apostle, who not only witnessed Jesus' miracles, but who also performed them in his name, who heard Jesus' teaching, who agreed with Peter's confession that he is the Christ, and yet he betrayed Jesus. This betrayal and the lack of repentance is evidence that Judas committed apostasy. His faith was never sincere, disingenuous, and here is the fruit of it. Jesus says that he will judge. You see, the Savior is also the judge. Now, judgment on unrepentant people is as sure as his salvation on the penitent. 
You see, for those of us who have received Christ by faith, who love him and follow him, we've been invited to feast with him in celebration of his finished work as we remember him. And that's what we're about to see in our third and final point, the transformation of the Passover. Look at verses 22 to 24. As they were eating, he took bread, blessed and broke it, gave it to them, and said, take it. This is my body. Then he took a cup, and after giving thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. He said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. You see, during the Passover celebration, Jesus transforms the Passover by instituting the Lord's Supper. He says that the elements point to him, testifying of what he would do and what he accomplished as he died. You see, the bread, it it is the unleavened bread. Jesus gave it and commanded his disciples to eat it. And he declared that it was his body. Now, when he said that it was his body, that does not mean that it became his body in that moment. This is not transubstantiation. But rather, the bread represented his body. It was symbolic in that it points to him. Now, why does it represent his body? Because his body was given for us. He was pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquity on our behalf. In verses 23 and 24, Jesus took the cup of wine, had them drink it, and declared that this wine represented his blood being shed. You see, through this meal, we get a window into the kind of death that Jesus would die. His death wasn't an ordinary death, but rather it was vicarious, a substitute in place of sinners. His blood was shed and he paid the price of redemption. You see, he transforms the Passover. It's no longer about a spotless lamb being slaughtered for redemption. It's about him and he fulfills it. You see, his cross-bearing death was to redeem and save sinners by God's grace. You see, what God accomplished through the sacrifice of a spotless lamb prefigured what God would accomplish through Jesus' death on the cross. You see, Jesus Christ is our Passover lamb who redeems us. Scripture testifies to this. John chapter 1 verse 29 says, Behold the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. 1 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 7. Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. You see here, we see that the Passover was a type, a foreshadowing, a prefiguring that pointed to Jesus and was ultimately fulfilled by Jesus. You see, Scripture is filled with types. Types can be a person, it can be an institution, or it can be an event that foreshadowed, prefigured, and pointed to Jesus and is ultimately fulfilled by him. Let me give a list of a few. Adam was a type. He was a covenant head and humanity was in him. And as we were born in him, his guilt and his sin nature has been imputed to us. Well, you know what scripture says about Jesus? Romans chapter 5 and 1 Corinthians chapter 15 says that Jesus is the second Adam. As our faith, when we place our faith in him, 
we are in him. And his righteousness has been imputed to us. Whereas in Adam all die, in Christ all are made alive. Also, the offices of priest, prophet, and king, all of which points to Jesus who is our priest, prophet, and king. The sacrificial system that God instituted in the old covenant ultimately pointed to Jesus' sacrifice for our sins. And the Passover, as we've read and as we're walking through, ultimately points to Jesus Christ who is our Passover lamb. You see, as I said earlier, in Egypt, the final plague, there was no distinction between Israel and Egypt. Israel, like Egypt, stood condemned for sin and needed deliverance from God's judgment. And God provided. He told them to sacrifice a spotless lamb. You see, beloved, sin is man's problem, only resolved by trusting in God's provision. Let me say that again. Sin is man's problem, only resolved by trusting in God's provision. You see, Israel couldn't save themselves, and neither could we save ourselves. Every effort would prove futile and vain. Why? Because we were born in sin. We lived in sin. We were blind by sin, and we were enslaved to sin. And so we need to be saved from it and set free from it. And that does not come from our volition or our works, but it comes from God. You see, salvation is not from us. Salvation is of the Lord. And the only way for one to be saved is by trusting in God's gracious provision, which is none other than his own son, the Lord Jesus. Romans chapter 3, verse 23 and 24, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, but are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. You see, Jesus' death, it brings about a new exodus, not from slavery to the Egyptians, but from slavery to sin. As we sung earlier, Whom the Son sets free is free indeed. And Jesus' death has set us free. Jesus' death hasn't only set us free. His death also inaugurates the new covenant. Look at verse 24. He said to them, this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. Now the phrase blood of the covenant It alludes to Exodus chapter 24, verses 3 to 8, where the old covenant was ratified through the shedding of blood. You see, God gave the law, revealing to Israel how they should relate to God and to one another. Now, the law couldn't save, but it was sufficient to condemn. You see, as Pastor John preached, the law exposed sin, and it provoked us to sin. And God in his grace has made a promise to make a new covenant. Now, the new covenant has way better promises. It promises regeneration, the sealing of the Holy Spirit, the law being written on our hearts, producing a transformed life, and it promises forgiveness of sins. What the old covenant couldn't do, God will do through the new covenant. 
And like the old covenant, the new covenant was inaugurated through blood. But it wasn't through the blood of animals. Instead, it was through the blood of Jesus. Did you see it? He said, this is my blood of the covenant. You see, Jesus' death was a sin offering. It resulted in atonement and propitiation. As he makes known in Mark chapter 10, verse 45, for the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. You see, beloved, if the Passover testified to God's faithfulness, his love, his grace, and his redemption, how much more Jesus' death. It proclaims all these and more. You see, beloved, if you want to behold God's love for you, look to Jesus Christ. If you want to behold God's faithfulness to his promises, look to Jesus Christ. For they are yes and amen in him. If you want to know if God is for you, look to Jesus Christ. If you're not a Christian, I am glad that you are here. Friends, I want you to know that Jesus Christ is the only Savior. And the only one who can save and who does save. As I said earlier, sin is man's problem. And it's only resolved, not by our works, not by cleaning ourselves up, but it's resolved by trusting in God's provision. And his provision was none other than his son. In his love, God sent his son to become a man, to suffer and die on behalf of sinners so that sinners like you and myself can be saved by God's grace. Redemption through the blood of Jesus salvation through the sacrifice of Christ. Friends, I would implore you this very day to turn from your sin and trust in Jesus Christ. Be delivered from the wrath that is to come by trusting in the Savior, for he is the only true and sure refuge. If you want to know more, you can talk to any of our members after service. We love to have conversations about Jesus. You see, Jesus, he transforms the Passover. He declares that the bread represents his body and that the wine or the vine represents his blood. You see, this meal, it proclaims the effectiveness of Jesus' death, that we have forgiveness, deliverance, and redemption. And Christ ordains for his church to remember him through this meal. As we come together in the name of Christ, as we eat this meal, he is present with us, feeding us as we feast on him by faith. It is a tangible reminder of the gospel, and we taste the sweetness of the gospel as we eat and drink. We participate in the benefits of Jesus' sacrifice as we eat. And y'all, did you catch that this meal is covenantal? He said, this is the new covenant He said, this is the blood of, my blood of the covenant. And so the recipients of this meal are those who have trusted in Jesus Christ, who have received the sign of the new covenant, which is baptism upon one's profession of faith. Now, it's implicit here 
but it's explicit in Luke chapter 22 and 1 Corinthians chapter 11 that we must eat and drink in remembrance of Jesus, celebrating his sacrifice for our sins. He ordains us to eat this meal regularly, and we should eat it with joy because what the meal proclaims. It proclaims the gospel of Jesus Christ, of his death for our sins. Now, because we live in this body of flesh and we are weak, there may be seasons where we question God's love. There may be seasons where we question God's forgiveness. Well, this meal is tangible assurance of both. It assures us of God's love and it assures us of God's forgiveness. You see, in our service, after Pastor John prayed, led us in a prayer of corporate confession, we heard the assurance of pardon. But in the Lord's Supper, we get to touch it and taste it as we're reminded of Jesus' sacrifice for our sins. And so, beloved, how should we eat this meal? We should take it with joy as we remember Christ and his sacrifice on our behalf, as we celebrate what he has accomplished for us. What is your attitude when you take the Lord's Supper? Are you taking it with joy? Knowing some of us, because we can take it so regularly, some of us may take it with indifference. And if we're there, I would encourage you to remember the Lord Jesus. Remember his sacrifice. He was not indifferent when he redeemed us. And so we shouldn't be indifferent when we remember him. He had joy. Hebrews chapter 12 verse 2 says, For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross and despised the shame. And so we get to remember him with joy and gratitude. See, as I meditated on this passage, the more I became convinced that as we mature in Christ, the more joy we should have when taking the Lord's Supper. And I say that because the more we mature, the greater understanding of our own sin and God's forgiveness. We have a greater understanding of God's love. We have a greater understanding of the person and work of Christ and its benefits of forgiveness, reconciliation between us and God, the fact that Jesus has united us, all of which should result in a greater love for him and a yearning for his imminent return. And all of it should produce a greater joy when taking the Lord's Supper. You see, in the Lord's Supper, we remember Christ. We reflect on his sacrifice. We celebrate the benefits, and we anticipate his return. You see, in the Lord's Supper, we remember, reflect, celebrate, and anticipate we look in three directions. We look back as we remember what Jesus has done. We look around as we see the effectualness of his death, that he has saved us and united us. And we look ahead because we know that our king is returning. Look at verses 25 and 26. Truly I tell you, I will no longer drink of the vine, drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. After singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. 
You see, Jesus voluntarily vowed to abstain from drinking of the vine until that day. Now, one may wonder, what is that day? Well, that day is that day that day. It is the great day that we anticipate, the day of Jesus' return and the consummation of his kingdom, where he will bring cosmic restoration and he will renew the creation. You see, the bridegroom, he will come, he will judge his enemies, and he will rescue his bride. Christ and the church will be united, never to depart. There will be endless joy and peace. And did you catch? Jesus awaits that day. And so should his bride. Beloved, are you awaiting the day of Christ's return? You see, this meal is a tangible reminder that our king is coming soon. As we eat and drink, the scripture says that we proclaim the Lord's death until he returns. The Lord's Supper is also a tangible reminder that we are not yet home. And we needed to be reminded of this because we're constantly prone and tempted to try to make this place our home. But beloved, we have a better home and it is coming. Our king is coming soon. You see, in the Lord's Supper, we are nourished on our journey as we await the new heavens and the new earth in the new Jerusalem. Beloved, as the corporate gathering is a foretaste of heaven, so the Lord's Supper is a foretaste of the marriage supper of the Lamb. It is our rehearsal dinner. It is a sweet reminder, and it heightens our anticipation for the wedding feast. As the bride gathers in the name of Christ, as the, bro- the groom is present with us spiritually, feeding and nourishing us as we eat this meal, we are to yearn for the marriage supper of the Lamb. You see, in our day, we take, as we take the Lord's Supper, we remember, reflect, celebrate, and anticipate. But on that day, we will celebrate with the bridegroom. We will dine with him and there will be endless joy. You see, in our day, the Lord's Supper is a foretaste. But on that day, the foretaste will give way to its fulfillment. Beloved, we are one day closer towards that being our eternal reality. May we hold fast to him. May we long for his return. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, God, we praise you that you are the God who redeems.